All right, well, we finished up our series, about 12-week series through the Minor Prophets last week. We are going to start the book, uh, the New Testament book of James in a few weeks. But before then, as many of you already know, we are going to do a short series on the interrelated topics of identity and gender and sexuality. These are very important topics in our world today. Lots of conversation, lots of questions, and they're also very important topics in the Bible. Um, in our normal course of preaching through books of the Bible, which we normally do, we don't necessarily uh, get the chance, at least very often, to really give these topics the full and necessary um, breadth and depth, um, especially in light of how much they are discussed in our world today, uh, in the many facets of these conversations and issues and struggles in our world. Um, the fact is that we are all being discipled in these things. We have been discipled in these things by our world, in TV shows, in movies, in music, at school, at work, on billboards and commercials. And so a dedicated series looking at what the Bible as a whole says about these things um, can carry a lot of value. So that's what we're going to do. Probably three, four weeks uh, we'll spend on this, um, just taking kind of a different um, topic, a different look uh, each week, um, but still relying on God's Word and considering what God's Word says about these things. Now, perhaps you may feel a bit nervous um, talking about these things at church, uh, but I would just say that um, we would be doing a disservice and not be doing um, what we are called to do if we didn't talk about these things at church, because they're being talked about everywhere, again. Um, I do want you to know that the intent is for these sermons to be age-appropriate for everyone. Um, however, if you have any questions or wondering kind of where we're going on a particular week, feel free to, to ask. Now, one of our goals in this series, as with any series that we go through, is to have our minds, our beliefs, and convictions shaped by God's Word. And so in this series, that is to understand God's will, God's ideal for matters of identity and gender and sexuality. If God's will and God's ideal are good, which we believe them to be, we want to give ourselves to that as much as we can. However, our goal is never simply to have right beliefs and right convictions, right? Paul says that you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can get everything right, but not have love and be nothing. Um, so we can have all of the right convictions, moral and ethical convictions, and have, still have no love for God or others. The condition of our hearts and our motivations and our loves and affections towards God and towards others matters just as much as what we believe. And this is true in part because our calling is not simply to create a society that agrees with our convictions and lives by our ethics and rightly guides our kids, but has no love for God. That would not be a win. And many will not agree with biblical convictions on these matters, if, and many others, if they don't first come to know and love the biblical God. And so we need to be connecting these discussions to the grand story of 
God in Scripture and to God's character, his graciousness, and his compassionate heart. And we need this story to not just um, help us understand things, but also to shape our hearts, to shape our, our motivations. So I would just humbly ask you uh, to be in prayer as we go through this for ways that you yet need to have your mind and your heart formed by God's word. Perhaps some of you, that's mainly in your convictions and your beliefs. Perhaps some of you, that's more in your heart and your affections and your dispositions and your loves. Uh, But I would say for all of us, this is very relevant on a very personal, intimate level because we all wrestle with and face issues of identity and gender and sexuality. And none of us are fully sanctified in these areas. So to put it very clearly, God has something to say about these things. These are not merely empty categories for us to do what we want with. But even more, along with that, from the very beginning, human rebellion has often manifested itself in these areas of identity and gender and sexuality. This is nothing new. This is not a result of a certain culture we live in. This is not a result of Hollywood or politics. This is a result of sin. And so it's not just a problem out there that we can just separate ourselves from. It is a problem in our hearts and one that we continue to battle with, even as God's people. So to get into this today, we're going to take one of Jesus' parables that um, allows us to just both consider our minds and, and beliefs and convictions, but also our hearts and loves and affections. Just kind of take a big picture look as, at, at God's story, at who God is and how we come to him and how we don't come to him. And this will relate in many ways to these topics as, and then we'll dive into them in a little bit more detail in the coming weeks. So turn to Luke 18. Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me start by reading the first few verses, starting at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, if you know the parable, uh, it is given as an indictment of this audience that's explained here, these people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Uh, These are likely the Pharisees um, that Jesus is here speaking to, one of uh, the several groups of Jewish religious leaders in that day. And knowing this, that this is one of these uh, standoffs between Jesus and the Pharisees, um, might make it quite easy for us to read this and feel no conviction. Like, Like we're totally on the side of Jesus here. I mean, nobody really today is on Team Pharisee, right? Like, we don't have those shirts, we don't wear those hats, we're not proclaiming ourselves Pharisee. Uh, That's a pretty negative term 
in and outside of the church today. Nobody's claiming Team Pharisee. And so we're all about Jesus going after these arrogant, self-righteous, legalistic know-it-alls. But think for a moment about the way they are described. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. If we're honest, this seems kind of tame as far as sins go, right? Like, what were they out there doing? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I mean, if you remove the fundamentalist religious aspect to, these, to this group, this, they would be quite acceptable in our world today, right? One of the main messages in our culture, and even in the church sometimes, is trust yourself. And so this is not just a religious problem here that Jesus is highlighting. It is a human problem. You can trust yourself in various ways, religious and irreligious. You can trust yourself by being like the Pharisees in very religious and moral and ethical ways. You, you agree with God's commands and you seek to live by them and you, you separate yourself from those sinners out there. And you make a clear distinction that you are very different from them and you are following God's way. But you can also trust yourself in less religious ways. Perhaps you openly and brazenly just reject God and you, you love what he forbids and you, you hate what he commands. And you may not have the righteousness of the Bible, but you have your own righteousness, right? There are many definitions of righteousness and justice in our world. Everyone's claiming to be just. Or perhaps you sim simply lessen the authority and goodness of God's word, and you, you kind of mingle your ideas of righteousness with God's. You take, pick and choose what you like of his, um, but then you, you reject that which offends our sensibilities. But the specific form of righteousness, exactly how we define that, isn't really the point, but rather what we do with it. We use our sense of being right, our sense of being just, to form our identity and sense of worth. Right? That's the point here. What are you doing with your righteousness? Are you trusting in it? Like, obviously, righteousness in and of itself is not a bad thing. You don't have to get very far from this parable to find that out. Jesus lists the Ten Commandments in uh, the next story. So righteousness itself is not the problem, but trusting in your righteousness, however you define that, is the issue because you use it to form your identity. And this then has two results. It distorts how you, you see and relate to others, and it distorts how you see and relate to God. And Jesus gets into both of these here. So first, trusting in yourself that you are righteous distorts how you relate to others. If you trust in yourself that you are righteous and not in a God who is gracious and compassionate to the unrighteous, you need to look down on others. Your identity depends on there being a group of people whom you despise and treat with contempt or at least don't actively love. Which is exactly what Jesus has the Pharisee doing here, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
If Jesus were speaking to conservative religious people today, you can imagine some of the categories that he would give. Thank you that I'm not like other men and women. The person at work who prefers they, them, rather than he, she. The man who now identifies as a woman. The abortion activist, the progressive, the radical feminist. God, thank you that I am not like them. Similarly, if he were speaking to progressives, he might, Jesus might have him say, thank you that I'm not like that fundamentalist Christian. Like the pro-life activist with the abortion is murder sign. The womanizer, the woman who enables the womanizer, the person who is unwilling to see her racism. And, and, and realize here, the point is not so much about whether these categories are sinful or not. The point is how they are used to justify one's position. Your identity and worth, and even your understanding of your position before God, is dependent on not being like that. You would be horrified if you were found out to be like that. Right? God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I don't belong to those categories that I don't have those sins. And yet we need those people to justify ourselves in, in this. Our identity requires the presence of a group that we can treat with contempt and disdain if we are to trust in ourselves, which explains so much of our world. And so we don't love these people, we don't pray for them, we don't seek their good, we don't sacrifice our time for them, we don't want the gospel from them, we merely use them for selfish gain. Secondly, trusting in your own righteousness distorts how you relate to God. So what pours out of your heart when you approach God is not thank you for your mercy and kindness and compassion towards me, but thank you that I am not like those other people. It's not, I love you, God. It's, look at how great I am. Look at what I've done. And so when you come to God, trusting in yourself that you are righteous, you don't really come to him at all. You're not really interested in who he is and what he can do for you. You're interested in justifying yourself and making much of yourself. Um, earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus says to another group of Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So justifying yourselves by trusting in yourself and looking down on others is an abomination in the sight of God. This is not how our world typically views the seriousness of trusting in yourself. What is the refrain throughout the times of uh, the judges in the Old Testament? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> Doing what is right in your own eyes ignoring and rejecting what is right in God's eyes. 
And it matters not whether we justify ourselves through religion or through rejection of religion. Through biblical righteousness or our own version of righteousness. Similarly, Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that God's purpose in salvation is to remove all human boasting before God, all pride before God, and to direct all boasting and and confidence and glory and joy to himself. And so he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The problem with trusting in yourself and trusting in your righteousness is that it steals glory from God by diminishing his grace. And your hope is no longer in God through the gospel of Jesus, but in yourself. Jesus died for you, God's love met the need of your sin, and you say effectively, I got this. Thanks, but I'm not one of those people. Now, before we get to the answer, the alternative to trusting in yourself that Jesus gives here, it's helpful to note how Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say to the Pharisees, the problem is you have all these rules and morals, that you have these standards of righteousness, and you tend to think they apply to everyone. Like you know what is best for everyone. The problem is that your religious beliefs make you intolerant and self-righteous. And so get rid of your religious beliefs, stop saying that there's one right way to live, one right way to God, and let people do whatever is right for them. Right? That's not what Jesus says. That's not what he does. There is no endorsement or minimizing of the sins mentioned in this passage. As you go on, you find the tax collector coming humbly and repentant to God, confessing his sin. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus will say that your righteousness actually has to surpass that of the Pharisees. So the problem is not that they're too religious, too concerned about righteous, but not enough. So the answer Jesus gives is not get rid of all these external authorities and voices and teachings and morals. Just be yourself. You are good and holy and perfect just as you are. You don't need anything or anyone else. No. The problem of self-righteousness isn't a religious problem. It's a human problem. We want to trust in ourselves and save ourselves and be our own God and make much of our own glory. We do this in various ways. So what is the better way? What is the Christian way? Jesus goes on, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is God's way to salvation and life and God himself? We might say it's exaltation through humility, right? Those are the words Jesus uses. Or joy through sorrow, life through death, being lifted up through humbling ourselves. In other words, trusting in God and his sufficiency, and his perfection, and his satisfaction, 
rather than yourself. Finding God to be better and more deserving and more desiring than yourself and a life apart from him. And so consider the actions and the words and the, the, the posture of this tax collector that Jesus puts forward as a positive example, right? So he stands far off. He's, he's hesitant to even come very close to God's presence in the temple. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. He knows that God is high and mighty and authoritative and perfect and holy, and you do not come before him lightly. His posture is in line with all of those in Scripture who see the presence of God. Like Moses, John in Revelation, Isaiah, they immediately know and feel their smallness and their unworthiness. Isaiah says, woe is me. They know the futility of trying to just puff up themselves and, and point to their own righteousness. As Isaiah will say, even, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags apart from God. No, when we truly see God's glory and, and worth and authority, it will ruin any hope of self-righteousness, any hope of self-salvation, self-assurance. Again, there's no boasting before the throne of God. Which leaves us with only two options. When we are confronted with the reality and glory of God, when we see him as he actually is, we have two options. One, we can deny it. We can dig in our heels and say, that's too great of a threat. I, I will rule my life. I will decide what is best for me. God, you are too much of a threat to my pride and my self-rule. Or, we believe that God is merciful and good to sinners. That the holy and righteous and glorious one is also kind and merciful and compassionate. And that his rule over us is better than our rule over ourselves. That his will is not to keep at a distance from us, but to draw near to us and to have us draw near to him and to shower us with good things. And this is what the tax collector does. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Despite his knowledge, like he has this fear of God, for sure. He knows God is high and mighty and, and perfect in holiness and not to be taken lightly. But despite this, he comes to God and prays for mercy. Why? What compels him? It, it cannot be simply a sense, an awareness of God's bigness and perfection and holiness and righteousness and his own unworthiness before that. There has to be more than that. Those things alone don't awaken in our hearts a desire for him and a love for him and a willingness to draw near to him. No, the tax collector also knows that there is mercy in the heart of God. 
He knows that God's holiness and God's call for holiness on our part isn't the last word on God. He knows that his sin and rebellion against God isn't the last word on himself. God's mercy draws him in and God's mercy changes everything. God is not only merciful, he delights to show mercy. It is part of his nature, is who he is. In the person and work of Jesus, he gives himself to suffer and be rejected and to die to show mercy to sinners. He goes out of his way to show mercy. So how do we get this? How do we get into this? How do we find the mercy of God? Well, it should be abundantly clear that it's not in making much of ourselves. It is not in affirming and thinking that everything is right about us, that we have what it takes, whether what we do or what we believe or what we feel or what we desire. Again, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags apart from God. No, our hope, our only hope is confessing and repenting our sin and casting ourselves on the God who is merciful, who is kind, who is gentle, who is waiting to welcome us in. Which means there is hope for everyone, for even the bad guys. God is willing to welcome anyone and everyone, extortioners, the adulterers, even tax collectors, whatever categories of people we would put in this sinner, too far off, too far gone, those people category. And specifically as we look at issues of identity and gender and sexuality, we need to believe and proclaim that there is hope Regardless of how one identifies, there is hope for those who feel out of place in their biological sex, for the one who has gone through gender reassignment treatment or surgery, for the one in same-sex relationships, just as there is hope for the adulterer, just as there is hope for the one addicted to pornography, just as there is hope for the one engaging in sex outside of marriage. And there is even hope for the self-righteous Pharisee if we would come humbly. Does this mean that God affirms everything about us? Is God welcoming and affirming? Those two things do not mean the same thing. God is welcoming. God is ready to receive us and loving and kind and compassionate. But coming to God is about us affirming him and his perfection and his sufficiency, not him affirming our perfection and sufficiency apart from him. Coming to God means letting go of our former self-righteous identities, the ways that we tried to define and, and build up a worth apart from him whether religious or irreligious, the things that we clung most tightly to to give us a sense of identity and worth and comfort and hope. 
our respectability, our success, our morality, our commitment to justice, our sexual desires, or our gender identities. And on these last couple points, and in line with our series, this doesn't mean that we just easily forget about all of this and, and no longer struggle and no longer have things to wrestle with. But as we find our new identity in Christ, we do this clinging more tightly to him than anything else, believing that him and his way is best, that he is our greatest good, wherever that leads. We'll get into that more in the coming weeks. But for now, let me just offer a few concluding reflections based on what we've seen here. So to those of us who perhaps have no problem and do not struggle clinging to the biblical teaching on sexual ethics, particularly in a world that wants to destroy those ethics, if our only response is, thank God I'm not like those people, we have failed. We have failed towards ourselves, we have failed towards those people, and we have failed towards God. Merely being able to correctly label everyone else's sin and need for mercy gets us nowhere before God. And that much should be clear from this text. That is the position of the Pharisee. We have to see that we are the sinners. We are the too far gone. We are the, the others, but that God has welcomed us in. Secondly, the reason people struggle with what the Bible says about gender and sexuality or anything else isn't ultimately because of our culture, again, or Hollywood or politics. It's ultimately because of our sin, because of our need to justify ourselves. And so the answer is not ultimately a, cultural, a culture that is more in line with biblical convictions, but a regenerate heart which means that this is more than a political or social battlefield. These are more than just cultural issues. They are those, and there is a time and place to speak into them as those things, but this is also a battle going on in people's hearts, first and foremost. This is a battlefield of the hearts and minds of people, including people in your life. And those people need a more gentle, patient, and personal approach than what you might take with a merely cultural battlefield approach. These are not merely issues to solve, problems to deal with. These are people to love. And so we should both, you know, there are times to humbly, humbly warn that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's a warning. Exalt yourself before God deny God, go your own way, do what is right, whatever, with, in your own eyes, and you will be humbled. But there is also a time and a place to say the one who humbles himself will be exalted and to invite people to find life and joy and building up in God. Finally, this is why being a part of a church and gathering like this is fundamentally different than any other sort of social 
gathering or groups, that, clubs that you may be a part of. We don't gather together to just pat each other on the back and affirm that we have got it right. Our group identity is right as opposed to those other people. We don't gather to hear, good job. You're part of the right crowd. You believe the right things. You're good thing you're not like those other people out there. No, we gather together to confess God's greatness, God's perfection, God's satisfaction, that our greatest good is in him, and that he accepts our faithfulness and our love and our worship, not because it is perfect and pure, but because he is gracious and kind and has given us Jesus. So I hope you can see that what we do just in simply in gathering and singing and confessing is, is pretty radical. It's a very different type of thing than every other sort of group we might gather with. It's not ultimately about us, but about him. Let's pray.